We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today, I am so happy to welcome to the podcast a very talented film writer and the mother of one of the most photogenic and adorable babies you'll ever see in your life. It is the lovely Beth Ann Gallagher, founder of the classic film blog Spellbound with Beth Ann, which has been running since 2008. Her writing has appeared in such diverse publications as an indicator series film noir set, and we are in the same Columbia 4 box, actually, so do check it out, as well as Turner Classic Movies' Backlot site, Discover Rio Vista magazine, and film festival programs. Additionally, a former president of the Sacktown Classic Movie Club. She also co-founded the Lusso World Cinema Blogathon, which is a celebration of Lusitanic peoples and their impact on film. Beth Ann, I want to thank you so much for being here. How are you doing and how's 2022 treating you so far? Oh, well, Jen, thank you for having me here. And I'm excited to be here. And 2022 is treating me really, really well. Um, I just changed my life. As you said, I had a baby. I was living in California. I decided to quit my job and became part of the great resignation. And (laughs) we packed up our house from California and moved back to my hometown in Massachusetts. So I'm a first time homeowner. And Yes. And, and, and first time stay at home mom, first time mom. And I'm hoping now that I don't have a demanding day job where I travel a lot, even though parenting can be demanding, which we'll talk about no doubt in this podcast. um, It it feels kind of nice to know that my side hustle of, of writing is actually like my adult thing on the side of, of having a child now. Yeah. So it's, I'm excited about it to see what I can dip into writing and, and where I live has just inspired me so much um, in terms of fiction writing, which I've got a lot of story ideas, but also too in, in film, there are film connections where I live now. Um, I live two houses down from Jane Fonda's mother's house when she was a teenager. Oh, wow. 
Yes. And and Oscar winner Brian Hegeland is uh, writing and directing a, a movie called Finest Kind, and it's filming all over my town right now in the city next door. Uh, so a lot of inspiration in person besides um, what I can attend or stream online. That is so exciting. Boy, you really did a lot of changes there in a short period of time, but all exciting ones. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Leaving California. I think you had told me that you were living, was it in part of a movie theater or by a movie theater? What was the story with that? Yes. At at one point we wanted more space and we moved in like out into the fringes of the Bay area Uh technically also in the Sacramento river Delta. And we found this former movie theater built as a silent movie theater in 1925. Bottom part was retail. Top part was turned into an apartment. And so I don't know, we had maybe about like an 1800 square foot apartment. And one of our rooms was a former balcony room. The floor was all flattened and it was, it was as large, it was larger than some people's studios, that one room. So it was pretty cool to see something having reuse like that. And we'd go up in the attic sometimes and look around and that's where the projectionist used to project the movies from. So there were things like a projectionist toilet upstairs. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Wow. So I'm guessing the screen was probably no more. No more. No. Um, The former auditorium had been preserved. Uh, The balcony room was sealed off to make it part of my apartment. Um, And the auditorium was preserved with uh, the murals repainted from the 1940s, but the floor was flattened. Yeah, that was really pretty. But the floor was flattened um, and it was turned into a retail space. Oh, that is so cool. And your new place, were you telling me that it had some kind of a bootlegging connotation? Yes. I I bought this house from uh, my friend Maggie, and she's done a lot of work on the history of the house. It was built by one bootlegger who lived here for a while and then sold directly to another uh, bootlegger, um, Rum Runners. Oh, Wow. That is so exciting. So much uh, fodder for fiction. I didn't know you wrote fiction. So I'm really excited for you. It's something I did when I was younger and I want to get back into it now that I'm going to have some downtime that's not involved with travel. (laughs) Yes. So much rich historical detail just you're surrounded by. That's very cool. Well, for those listening who might be new to your great writing on film, what can you tell everyone about Spellbound with Beth Ann and perhaps any favorite articles you've written that you'd like to recommend? Sure. Um, I started my blog in 2008 and I had always loved movies and I love self-expression. I had been a college and community radio DJ for for, um, some years, and I really missed having an an outlet. And so at one point when LiveJournal was this thing, I had a personal blog, but then I decided to stop concentrating on that and, and share a passion because Talking about movies, especially when you're going back to classic and silent film, it's almost a, a way of crate digging like you would for for records for a, a music show. So <laughs> I, I changed to visual visual or audio visual media from from a audio media. Oh, and, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and still, there's a lot to express with a voice, but this time a, a written voice to share and connect with people. And it's been great because... 
I am originally from Massachusetts and I moved out to California for my now husband to go through a career change, which involved grad school. So I moved away from a lot of people I knew. And the blog has been a great way to connect with people, stay connect with people. Uh, and I've made a lot of friends through it. And I've gotten some some great opportunities through it too, like covering the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival and covering the San Francisco Silent Film Festival as press for uh, articles that really, that I would recommend. There's one I had so much fun researching called That's Not Musadora, A Case of Mistaken Identity Compounded by Tumblr. There was this picture that was supposedly of Musadora, but I knew it wasn't because officially it was a completely different person. And there were certain elements to the photo that looked so contemporary. And I did a lot of online digging and one reason why the mistaken identity kept getting propagated was because people didn't dig into it. They really wanted this photo shot of Musadora that was clear of her in the vampire climbing a building's roof. And this was a celebration of that moment in the movie recreated by a photographer. And there were people involved in styling it. There was a person involved in modeling it. And I, I guess I can be kind of a, obsessive, but finally I, I found out why people might not have been able to dig into where the photo was from. A lot of it was in French. And if you're using Google and you, you speak English, you write in English, you're going to get a lot of English language hits. And I finally got some hits in, in French. And I found out this uh, woman, Beatrice uh, Tatero was the photographer. And I, I even found that she had written about how she was disappointed that people weren't recognizing her work and, and misidentifying the model and misidentifying the era it was from. And I wrote this piece out all about it. And then she contacted me. The person who was the makeup artist contacted me. She was very grateful to have another source besides herself on the internet, yeah. setting the record straight about her, her artwork. And and I was quite happy to do that. That's incredible and so fascinating and a good way to, you know, help uh, make sure that people are attributed for their great work and also um, be a good source and prove yourself as somebody who loves to get to the bottom of things. You are someone who really does love research. That's one of my favorite things about you is your your pieces are always just so... Uh, full of great insights and depth. And yeah, so I can't wait. I'm gonna have to look for that. That's really, that sounds so fascinating. And I'm also really impressed by the idea of the Luso World Cinema Blogathon. So when did you start that? And also, can you give us any more information about it and perhaps any discoveries you made along the way? Oh, sure. Um, so far, we've had two rounds of the Blogathon. We um, held it in November. Oh goodness. The first year was November and we skipped, we skipped 2021. So the first year 
must have been 2019. And I had the idea for it, but I didn't want to just do it my, myself. Um, I wanted somebody else who also has some Lusitanic heritage to, to participate. So I approached two other women bloggers. One said yes, one said no. The okay. one that said yes, um, she's, she writes in both um, English and Portuguese. She's Brazilian. Um, and her name is Leticia Magalhães. And, okay. and she runs this website called uh, Critica Retro. And it's, it's a bilingual classic film site. Ooh, that's mm-hmm. great. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so she was so positive and enthusiastic about it. And I thought it was great because I, you know, I have a North American, a United States perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I'm second generation born here on the Portuguese side of the fa- family. And um, Lei is is Brazilian. So she's got a South American perspective, a Brazilian perspective. Brazilian perspective. And she she really helps with a lot of information about it. Because I was new, I knew the generation that immigrated from Portugal. I knew my great grandparents. Okay. And I, I knew my grandparents who, who were Portuguese American, the first generation born here. They they had that thing that some generations do where they can be very assimilationist. And I felt okay, bad sure. because yeah. I, I don't know if you saw this uh, on, on your Italian-American side of your family, but on my Portuguese-American side of the family, that first generation, they they internalized some of the attitudes that were expressed oh, yes. towards them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, my grandma and her sisters decided that they did not want to marry Italian men because they saw um, the old old world attitudes, so to speak, of their father and some of the men that they hung around and just wanted to get rid of that Italian uh, heritage, essentially. And then, of course, the next generation really loved the heritage and and so on. So, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I love that. What films uh, can you recommend? Any um, figures you want to give a shout out to that we should check out to learn more about this rich heritage? Well, it, it, if you go by um, countries that have Lusophone heritage or where Portuguese is an official language, sure. you can just about cover um, a creative of any race because yeah. we, you've got descendants in the United States, you've got Brazil, you've got Portugal, you've got Angola, you've got parts of Equatorial Guinea, parts of wow. Goa. Macau, so uh, all over the world. And I don't want people to think it's a celebration of the former Portuguese empire. Rather, I want it to be a celebration of of these people and their descendants who's who's connected by language. And they tend to be, yeah, they tend to be referred to as as Lusophones. And I'm like, why can't we just say Lusitanic? So not (laughs) everybody says Lusitanic, but... I've been warmly received by people who have Lusitanic heritage that isn't necessarily Portuguese. It might be Cape Verdean. And, and Cape Verdeans have a, a, a biracial um, identity. Um, a lot of them are mixed um, mm-hmm. based on, on the fact that uh, Cape Verde was founded as a way station on the transatlantic slave trade. Oh, wow. Uh, and so... Um, so they have their own language, uh, Creolu, which is a, a Creole between um, African languages and Portuguese. 
And there are many descendants um, in the in the United States um, who have Cape Verdean heritage. For example, Lena Horn had Cape okay. Verdean heritage. Um, and then I didn't know that. Wow. Yes. And then um, a, a more contemporary actress, um, Yaya da Costa, um, okay. she 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 kind of taught the world how to say respect in Portuguese when she was on America's Next Top Model, when she had a T-shirt that said respeito because she wasn't feeling respected. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> I love that. That is so great. I was just going to say that sounds really cool. And as far as films, do you have any that are some of your favorites that you want to be sure that we should check out? Well, I, I have to say that everybody loves Carmen Miranda. Uh-huh. So Carmen Miranda is an interesting case. She was Portuguese ethnic- ethnically. She was Portuguese by citizenship, yet she's one of the most famous Brazilians. And she was truly Brazilian culturally. So if you check her out, um, she did put together an, an outfit um, that she became famous for, which was based on the section of, of, of Brazil called Bahia, which is very uh, heavily African influenced. Okay. Um, but but she, I think she did it from a good place in her, in her heart to celebrate the people and the women she saw. She yeah. thought they were the most glamorous women. Oh. And, so, and so she, anything by her, like um, you can see, the one criticism people make is how the American studios used her. Yeah. Um, they kind of gave her uh, a Latin American identity that was kind of a mismatch in the films. So oh, sometimes sure. she might be playing a character of one ethnicity, but singing the songs of a different ca- country. Yeah. But she, I mean, she was so talented and she really meant it. Um, and then for contemporary Portuguese directors, Pedro Costa, I reviewed his film Casa de Lava down to earth on my blog. And that's another one of my favorite pieces I did because that's a really rich film. Uh, it follows this young woman, uh, Mariana, who travels with uh, a man who's been injured, who's Cape Verdean, who had gone to Portugal to earn money for back home. And he's in a coma. So she okay. travels with him uh, back to Cape Verde. And a lot of that was inspired by I Walked with a Zombie. And so even wow. though it's not a horror film, yeah, it's, it's not a horror film, but there, there is somebody in the in in the, the second movie, Casa de Lava, who's a, a troubadour, just like there was a troubadour and I walked with a zombie. So there are certain elements, elements taken from it, but it, it shows a little bit of, of the countryside of Cape Verde and in some of the after effects of of a country that's been got that earned its freedom, but it's still post-colonial. So there are struggles there when, when, when suddenly you have to have this country that you're rebuilding um, that probably had struggles before when it was still colonized too. I'm going to have to look for that. I know congratulations are also in order as we establish of the birth of your darling son. So I know you've been quite busy caring for and falling more in love with him over the past year. And he undoubtedly inspired the theme that you chose for the episode of parenthood and classic movies for today, especially in the films, as we're going to get into bachelor mother, penny serenade and never too late. We will go deeper into those movies in just a moment. But before we do that, 
I would like to ask you to tell us more about the wide range of parent parenthood movies that you find compelling just overall, and perhaps how your assessment of these have changed over the last year after becoming a mom. Oh, certainly. Well, out of the ones uh, I picked, um, Bachelor Mother from 1939 and then um, Penny Serenade 1941, when I was younger, those were constantly on TV. So they were very familiar. And so I I thought more about Bachelor Mother from the romantic screwball angle. And and now I pay a lot more attention to um, the woman angle mm-hmm. and to, to the parenting angle. And, and I relate to some of the things in that. And then Penny Serenade. Oh, my goodness. It's, 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 it's like a triple hanky movie. Yes, of course. And, yeah. and I find it even more affecting now as, as, as a parent, um, some of the sad parts of that. Um, yeah, it, it is imagine. a true melodrama. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And then Never Too Late, it, it actually has some familial connections for me that, that oh, when exciting. we dive into it, yeah, yeah that, I, that I can talk about. But that one wasn't as, as uh, wasn't as well known to me in some ways, but I chose it because I have became a mother later in life. Mm-hmm. I got pregnant at 46. So I got pregnant at the age I made my mother's mother a grandmother. Um, yeah, my mom, my mom was born when my grandmother was 23. My mother had me when she was 23. And here I go having my son at 46. So never too late deals with a late in life parenthood. And in fact, all of the movies kind of deal with surprises. There's, there's a surprise connected to the babies in some way. Speaking of surprise, I know everyone cannot see Beth Ann as we're talking, but she is someone who looks about like, 30 or so she does not look 46 so that's incredible I'm just I'm in shock here it's like no way are you 46 come on but well that's true because I'm 48 now (laughs) Uh there you go (laughs) you're like Jen do that math that doesn't check out yeah (laughs) not at all and then as far as watching just other films um in the past year anything else kind of strike you as oh that's ridiculous or oh I can relate to that now Oh goodness. Um, I don't know if, if one of the weird things about the pandemic for me is I'm getting back into films during the pandemic. I really got into watching um, TV, TV shows, some of the miniseries, some of them episodic shows and a lot of them foreign. And it it was just, it was just escape. Yeah. Yeah. Anything good that kind of hit you differently maybe while you were pregnant or just after. Well, a lot of them were, were, were period pieces. Um, So uh, one was, that was a lot of fun was a Berlin dance school. It's set post-World War II and it's in a dance school where the, the mother is still teaching very formal dances, but her daughter becomes a rock and roll dancer and her daughter wants to modernize the studio. Yeah. (laughs) The one thing I'll give is a trigger warning because one of my friends had a really hard time watching the the first series of that because there, there is a rape scene that has some realistic details. Okay. No, yeah. it's good for you to establish that for sure. Well, and Seaside Hotel. 
Seaside, Seaside Hotel. Hotel. I've heard good things about that. Oh, yeah. I was so obsessed with that that I was like binging it. Um, <laughs> and I was so impatient that the um, Prime Video was a year behind. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but you, it really pulls you in because at first it's a light and frothy comedy and it follows these people and families that come back to the Seaside Hotel year after year. Uh-huh. And and now um, it's stopped off um, in the U.S. where it's during World War II Ooh. and the Germans have occupied Denmark, the setting of the series. So it goes from light and frothy comedy of manners to getting quite serious as it goes along. Wow, that's interesting. Well, longtime listeners of Watch with Jen have undoubtedly heard me talk about and recommend our first delightful film, 1939's Bachelor Mother, multiple times, I should say, since its earliest days of this podcast, directed by the great Garson Kanan, who was perhaps best known for writing scores of comedy classics, often with his wife, Ruth Gordon including like Adam's Rib, The More the Merrier, Pat and Mike, It Should Happen to You. Oh, and he also wrote a little play called Born Yesterday. Kanan did not, however, write this film, penned by Norman Krasna and based on an Oscar-nominated Felix Jackson story, which was written for the 1935 Austrian-Hungarian film Little Mother, Bachelor Mother, which would later be remade as the musical Bundle of Joy, stars Ginger Rogers as a seasonal sales girl at the New York department store John B. Merlin and Son. Hours after she receives notice that she'll be let go after the Christmas holiday ends, Rogers goes on her lunch break and sees an older woman leaving a baby on the steps of an orphanage. Fearing that the child will roll off, she goes to catch it and is mistakenly believed to be the unwed mother abandoning her child. With nobody believing her story, thanks also to the fact that the child stops crying in her arms, the orphanage contacts her department store and gets John B. Merlin's playboy son, David Niven, to give her her job and her baby, at least they think it's her baby, back. Becoming personally involved in her plight, almost despite himself, it isn't long before a new makeshift family develops. It's very funny, very sweet, and has become a staple for the Christmas season on TCM. But enough from me, Beth Ann. How much do you love this one? Oh, I love this movie a lot. I've loved it since I, I was a kid. And it's the kind of thing that as you get older and keep watching it over and over again, different things stick out to you. But the laughs still remain, even though you know what's coming. It's still yes. hilarious. <laughs> and, it's, and it's screwball without the uh, any... Um, Ah, slapstick. It's, it really it's, is. It, yeah, it makes you feel mature watching <laughs> it. I did as a kid. It's like, oh, look at all these jokes. And then you get more and more of the jokes as you get older, like the joke at the end. I don't know if we want to spoil that for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is super clever. Uh, when I was reading James Harvey's book, Romantic Comedy, he kind of described it as screwball comedy without any of the frenetic tone. So Mm -hmm. he was talking about it being remarkably soft-spoken. Everything in the film is underplayed. It really is. He was complimenting Mm -hmm. Ginger Rogers' laid-back, deadpan style. I know she Mm -hmm. didn't want to make this movie. And so... No. Yeah. Yeah. The director had to encourage her. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that two of the movies we're covering um, had stars that didn't want to make the movie. 
and and with and she does such a great great job because I I really love sassy knowing deadpan ginger. She that was too. my introduction to her. I didn't see the Astaire movies until after I knew Sassy Ginger by herself. Oh, my first introduction was through all of the Fred Astaire movies. And I loved her in those. This one, I actually think I saw for the first time, maybe in the last 10, 15 years. So Mm -hmm. I'd already become a huge fan, like, um, you know, the line about her doing everything backwards and in high heels. So she had the the harder role or whatever as part of uh, Rogers Mm -hmm. and Astaire. I fell completely head over heels for her when I saw those movies. Uh, I was like a senior in high school. I remember at Barnes and Noble on the clearance rack, they had like the video set of the three most famous ones with Swing Time, Top Hat, and Shall We Dance. And that was all I needed to just be a complete uh, ginger fan right away. And so when I saw this, I just thought it was a continuation and I sought out everything that I could find with her in it. And she's just so fabulous. I love her in Vivacious Lady. That's another one of my faves. Um, That's kind of a softer, sweeter ginger. She has a couple moments where she breaks through and is bratty, especially a fight in that movie with another woman. But I just, I think she's really good here. She's more uh, down to earth when Harvey was analyzing her in that same book. He was talking about her being... Uh, both dreamy kind of in her own head, but also she's her own sidekick and doesn't need a sidekick. And I thought that was a good assessment too. And she's top built because David Niven yeah. was supporting um, yeah. uh, in all senses. Um, that was his billing. He was not a leading man yet. And his leading man status probably got interrupted by him joining the British army for World War II. This was a sleeper True. hit. And so if he was able to follow it up with a lot of movies consistently, he probably would have been an even bigger star than he was. Yeah, because this was following like Wuthering Heights when he had kind of a thankless role in that one. He didn't Mm -hmm. really get to show what he could do. So this was Niven um, stepping into a different mode, comedy. And he's a natural here. He's really funny. They have great chemistry. I love the scene where he takes her for the New Year's party and He's kind of helping her maneuver through all of his phony friends and, you know, mm-hmm. like say no to the men and ignore the rest or something like that. And they uh, <laughs> pretend that she's Swedish and he has to translate and everything he translates is rude. And yes, it's very funny. <laughs> yes. And then she finally gets that great line at his yeah. uh, now ex-girlfriend, obviously, yeah. uh, when she reveals, yes, I understand you. And I speak, speak perfect English. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's so funny. For sure. Oh, yeah. And and there's something, too, about um, Donald Duck being in this that just adds a level of madness. I, I You can relate to her having to demonstrate this product over and over again. Um, dolls, wind-ups, a lot of it making noise, the kind of thing that must have gotten into her, her character's subconscious where she was probably even dreaming about Donald Duck at night. Yes. And so there's a lot going on with that. Yeah. yeah. And um and okay, I have a really bad pun, but of course we know about um, Deus Ex Machina. I say yes. Duck Ex Machina. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't seen it yet, I, I don't want to spoil it, but the, the, the duck is the duck keeps playing an important role throughout the movie. 
Yeah. And I love all the little humor about her workplace too, which is kind of woven into the plot. Like we just, it doesn't become just a punchline. You know, it is a department store where you can't exchange anything, even if it's broken. Anyone who's worked a seasonal job, as I, I worked at Hallmark when I was a teenager and, you know, Christmas was insane working at a Hallmark store. And mm -hmm. so anyone who's worked in a department store or any kind of store, especially around the holidays, can relate to this movie and just how chaotic it is and, um, you know, jumping through all the hoops. And so I love that uh, Niven being the son of the department store owner just assumes everything runs completely smoothly at this uh, store that they own and it does not. And so I th think that's really fun. And he learns part of how they make their money. You don't take anything back. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know. There's always a catch. Yes. And, you know, I read the Harvey book and then I also read the Janine Basinger um, a woman's picture book again. Uh -huh. And she she I love department store movies. There are so many yes. of them and a lot of, a lot of them are fun. Some comedies, some dramas. Um, but she talks about the, the department store as another type of prison. Um, and, yeah, that's true. And that was kind of an interesting viewpoint because. I, I've always thought of it, yes, it's a hierarchy, but you can work your way up. And mm -hmm. for some of the people working in the department store, um, maybe that's a, a step up from the job they would have had if they stayed in their hometown. Like poor Polly Parrish, who says, there's nobody left in my hometown for me. This is yeah. what I have now. Yes. Yeah. And especially the department store Christmas movie. I mean, that's a whole subset of film, you know, Miracle on 34th Street. The one that I love with Robert Mitchum, Holiday Affair. Uh, where, yes, <laughs> where Janet Lee's character is an undercover shopper and, you know, gets gets him in trouble with his job. And there's a whole uh, plot line with that. So there is something about, especially it's Christmas, sort of a consumer yeah. holiday. And um, yeah, I think this is also just really fun. You have Charles Coburn, who's so good. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, he gets to play the the senior, uh, David Niven's mm -hmm. father, who, you know, I don't care whose baby it is or who's, who the father is. I'm the grandfather. I love that line. And uh, yes. he's just marvelous. Yes. And there's so many people claiming that the baby looks like someone that's no yes. blood relation. He claims the baby looks like him. And then somebody else said, oh, I would know this baby anywhere. This baby looks just like you to Polly. <laughs> yes, it is so funny. And the scene, of course, when she's in the park with the other moms and, you know, how competitive uh, mothers yes. can be about their babies and the progress that the babies are making. I mean, this movie tapped right into that. Yes. In, in the contemporary era, we have Facebook and Facebook has become mm -hmm. like the family wallet. And so, of course, we want to share updates about our babies and pictures about our, our babies. And it can walk the line between cheerfully sharing and bragging and other yeah. people comparing to what up at home. Yes. <laughs> the babies. Yeah. It starts so little. It's getting clicky with the babies. No, too funny. And then the, the scene um where David uh, Niven as David Merlin has this baby book where oh, he's claiming we're going to do everything scientific. And so yep. he knows nothing about babies. He's not a father. He's bought this book that he's reading as he talks to her. Yes. And, and, and so he's trying to tell her she's feeding, feeding the baby wrong, which, which is just hilarious because she's spoon feeding the baby. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes, she is. And as he's explaining the the rules or the instructions get more and more um, just ludicrous. And as they continue on to the point of like putting oatmeal on gauze into the baby's navel, you realize two pages have been stuck together. But, you know, he's he's a man who knows what he's talking about because he's reading it in the book and he's unwilling to bend on that until finally it's pointed out. Just that makes no sense. And of course, the pages are stuck together. Yes. So good. And and then like if this movie had gone a different way, it could have been a feminist nightmare because here's yeah. this woman being made responsible for this child that's not related to her, but everybody automatically assumes is hers, yeah. and it comes with some judgments from some and supports from support from others. And um, even though she wanted a child someday, she wanted to do it in the right way when she was married. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, um, so this here's this surprise baby, just as much as a surprise as if the stork brought it, or if she was pregnant and didn't realize it. Yeah. And boom, here here it is, and it's changing her whole life. And it and when she resists uh, against the baby, life becomes harder, more stressful, and she receives negative judgment. And when she gives in to 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 her maternal feelings to the baby and to raising the baby, life starts improving. Her job becomes permanent. She gets a $5 a week raise and romance blossoms. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And all, all with the ready-made baby. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And um, one of the potential titles for this movie that, that Keenan suggested that the studio said no was baby makes three. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to call it baby makes three, which is funny because if you fast forward to the contemporary era, that was actually a a subset of romance novels that that was the theme in in the contemporary that baby that, you know, um, that baby there's baby and mama. And then, and then the, the romantic man is found. (laughs) Uh Okay. Yeah. You know, a little DNA. Yeah, usually with these sort of ready-made family or oops, you have a baby. Usually it's the father who is surprised by it. You get like mm-hmm. three men and a baby, those kind of films. Or yeah. uh this is pretty rare. Like I was trying to think what other ones sort of play by oh. this rule besides uh and baby boom is one of the baby other boom. ones that I thought of. It's one of my favorites. Diane yeah. Keaton, of course, inherits a baby and then mm-hmm. she goes to small town. I want to say it was Connecticut or something like that. Rhode Island. I don't know. It's a small town. It's an yeah. adorable little place. And she, you know, meets Sam Shepard and everybody mm-hmm. wins right there and uh, <laughs> loves being a mom. And, you know, it's yeah. just like the same kind of thing. But it is rare usually yeah. for these uh, and, films. And Baby Boom flips it in a way because Ginger Rogers is an every woman. Yes. But Diane Keaton's character Superwoman. in Baby Boom is an extraordinary woman. Yes. Yeah. She's the exceptional woman. Yeah. Um, and so uh, and sometimes things like that can be um, gender societal um, reassuring because, mm-hmm. yes, she they all end up with maternal feelings and they all end up loving the baby and they yeah. all end up paired off. <laughs> but at the same time, sometimes, yes, that is what makes a, a woman happy. So it's her choice. Exactly. That's the important thing. The choice, the choice element is missing here a little bit, but, <laughs> you know, let's just say, but it's just, it's such a darling film. I think it's kind of a cool idea too, of this woman who, I mean, she could really raise, well, this is before any gen- genetic or any kind of testing she could do, but she could even be far, um, 
gruffer or push back even more. And so it is a really tricky line for the movie to navigate. There are judgments that uh, the characters make on her that the, you know, I think also what's good about it is from a safe distance, especially in the 1930s, it is asking audiences, why are we making these judgments? And I think Mm -hmm. uh, that's good. Like when she wants to go out um, originally early into the film in order to, I mean, she just was let go at her job, do this like silly dance competition with a coworker, just in the hopes that they will play second, I believe, to Mm -hmm. to get the certain amount of money for the prize. And, you know, their bad luck, they take first and it's a cup instead of the money. And, um, you know, and just the judgment that's on Niven's face when he thinks it's, uh, you know, a mom going out and leaving the baby. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it is raising some really fascinating questions for the time, I think too oh yeah Yeah. and 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 honestly too it it would be really hard for most moms to go out with a baby that that young Mm -hmm. she guesstimates that the baby's about um seven months old which which sounds pretty accurate because the baby has two teeth and Uh it's in that transition period where it's having formula but it's having solid food too um so biologically the baby is a toddler Oh, I wondered about the accuracy because that baby looked like much older than than yeah. it is. Yeah, of course, that's another thing you have to kind of excuse when you're watching movies. They they play with that quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. But the, the baby actor doesn't stand. The baby actor crawls. So I, I assume it is a yeah. toddler that they hasn't learned how to walk yet. <laughs> yeah. But it also suits. Maybe that's just it suits the script, too. You, I don't know. But it is a big baby. <laughs> yes. So this is one that you had seen since childhood. I'm yeah. Guessing you said. Yeah. yeah. And I always focused on the romance and the, yes. and the absurdity of it. And it's just so surreal and weird, even though it it's seems normal. One. Yeah. 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 I know it was one of the biggest um, sleeper hits of the decade, according to James Harvey, that RKO had at the time. And it really confirmed her stardom, especially on her own away from uh, Fred Astaire. Yes. Yeah. And and then um, the other thing I thought about is if if people like this movie, but they want it minus the parenthood, Mm -hmm. then they have some choices between like um choices such as um it 1927 with Clara Bow again okay. another one about um a sales girl in a department store snagging the son of the department store owner uh-huh. <laughs> um same thing with my best girl with Mary Pickford and Buddy Rogers from 1927 that's another uh, one with that theme no baby though and okay. then um why be good 1929 Colleen Moore yet again another sales girl who who nabs the the owner's son in it as well from so that's those are a lot of fun for for department store movies um yeah like the shop baby. girl movies yes, yes exactly well our next film is one that I was convinced that I had seen before but I quickly discovered I had not So it's the 1941 heartbreaking yet ultimately heartwarming George Stevens directed melodrama Penny Serenade starring Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. A far cry from their two comedic team ups in The Awful Truth, which I just which I just discussed with screenwriter Ted Griffin in our Leo McCary episode and also My Favorite Wife, which was helmed by Bachelor Mother director Garson Kanan. 
Penny Serenade chronicles the relationship between an ambitious newspaper reporter played by Grant and his sweetheart turned wife who meet cute Mary and then must endure a string of catastrophic bad luck while trying to have a family. A film that's boldly unafraid to, spoiler alert, go to the same well of children dying more than once or show the difficulties of marriage and relationships as well as the idea that sometimes the very things that first attract you to someone might become the things that drive you nuts eventually. It's extremely well-crafted by George Stevens and its cast. Cary Grant would receive an Oscar nomination, but it is also a hard watch, as you pointed out. So what can you tell us about this one? Well, the, of course, this one um, has some different uh, nightmares or pitfalls of, of parenthood in yes. it. Um, I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Irene Dunn's character, Julie, um, uh, suffers a dramatic miscarriage. Oh, and I don't want to say how, if yeah. you, in case the listeners haven't seen how yet, but um, the the miscarriage ends up in uh, permanently affecting her ability to have children, which means mm -hmm. she can't have children after this miscarriage. And it's a very dramatic scene that happens in, which is, which is quite sad. And then like all couples who have to face that decision about whether or not to have children once they can't have biological children, it, there's the focus on adoption. Yes. And it's really interesting because there's a lack of communication between Carrie Grant's character, Roger, and Irene Dunn's character, Julie. They're not talking about adoption together, even though it's years, years later. It's their um, family friend, Applejack, played by Edgar Buchanan. So good. Yes. yes. My favorite character in the movie, for sure. He he is great. And, and he becomes a little go between and, yes. and one touching part about it is this character was adopted. And so he's facilitating them communicating about adoption, but he can also personally share the story of, of, of being in an orphanage and the other kids there who didn't get adopted that he saw and how it would be wonderful for them to give, to give a home to one of those kids now who's still, who's still in a home at this day. Yeah, he's and, kind of the mediator, essentially, you know, that horrible thing. I, I tell this story a lot about uh, going with uh, two of my friends who were married, who um, were normally just always simpatico. But I remember once they picked me up for our friend Dave's birthday party. And he lived, he had just moved and lived like a good hour to an hour and a half away. When I got in the car, I could tell they had just had a fight. And so it was one of those things where I was sitting in the back the whole time and they would talk one to one, like, okay, the husband would talk to me, then the wife would talk to me about something else. And it was like a <laughs> weird situation where I felt like I was the Applejack. And so in this movie, it's kind of that thing, like, tell her this. He's not to that level, but you kind of see that he is sort of playing the mediator or the safe person in this relationship because they really aren't voicing their their wants or desires or their fears about being a parent or adopting. And I don't know if necessarily they would have felt comfortable, especially I think now we're more in touch with our emotions or sharing these thoughts with a partner. And I think mm -hmm. back then, you know, we didn't really have an outlet for this or a way to safely do that with your husband or your wife. Cause you just thought, you know, you get married, you have kids, you work the nine to five job, you have a house 
and all this stuff falls into place and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Right. And, and, and with the Julie character, she makes an assumption because Grant's character was so anti-children when they met. Yes. They have this interesting fortune cookie scene where she gets promised by a fortune cookie she'll have a baby soon. And Carrie Grant doesn't like that one fortune cookie says that he's going to get married. So he opens a second one that says he'll remain a bachelor. And that's the one he shows to her. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a little bit of difference of wavelength between the characters at, at, at different times. Um, and so you can see why she would uh, make assumptions that he might not be interested in adopting because um, he didn't really show interest in children until she told him she was pregnant. Yeah. And I've, I've experienced that with some of my circle of friends, guys who were not interested in kids or even really they're like nieces and nephews. It didn't really phase them. And of course, when you have your own kids, that's a whole different ball game for sure. I mean, not for everybody. Some people it's not, um, they still don't warm up to the role, but in some of my my friends and uh, relatives, the male um, parties were were definitely anti kids, and it totally changes. I know my own parents didn't know if they wanted kids because they thought, you know, this was like post Vietnam, and they were like, you know, is it fair to bring kids into this world which seemed so dangerous? They'd you know seen the riots and assassinations and war, and we're just kind of questioning that. And then of course they have kids, and everything changes. Yes. Yeah, it it does. Um, in in some ways, even if you want children, it, it, there's a there's a feeling of not being ready, and you can postpone yes. it and postpone it and postpone <laughs> it. And really, you're if there's that desire, you become ready once you have that child. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even in the movie, you see where they're afraid to almost break her. And that is such a common parental reaction. I have this tiny thing. What, what do I do? Oh my gosh. I know. I know one of the, I think the most darling scenes in the movie, but it's also just such a strange scene is when um, they're all kind of standing around, like letting Irene Dunn figure out how to bathe this kid. And, um, you know, she doesn't know what to do, but they're all watching and nobody is offering any kind of guidance. Just like, well, you're a woman, you should instinctively know. And I do like that they own up to the fact that, no, she doesn't really know. And it's Applejack who, well, I would drown in that much water or whatever, you know, he, he has the help or knows how to, um, you know, how many pins or whatever for the baby, uh, in changing the baby. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of good stuff here that is playing with gender role and surprise and uh, how it takes a village to raise a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, he's probably one of the early on-screen mannies, you yes. know, the male nanny. Oh, that's a good way to say it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, and it, it is interesting because there there is a lack of judgment until it's the adoption agency. The adoption oh. agency is the external judger uh, on all yes. of this. Yeah, which, they are. Which is, which is hard because, you know, um, in, instead of like the judgments that you face from other parents or, or, or schools or other institutions, uh, if, if you can have a child biologically, um, you don't have to go through that monitoring that this couple will. Um, being on a year's probation and the follow-up about whether they can permanently adopt the child. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they do such a thing today with, with, with adoption, but um, 
Yeah. It's it's a leap of faith for them. It really is. Yes. There's all kinds of um, protocols put into place. I mean, as there should be, of course, with adoption, but it does raise that double standard, that question. This is another film that with the, just the relationship um, in general makes you um, take an unsentimental view at times about what marriage is and how he's spending his money and what he's yes. doing with his own career, where he buys a newspaper and should he be buying a newspaper? Or um, I thought a really fascinating and very telling scene early in their marriage when they were over in Japan. And he doesn't want to tell her exactly how much money he inherited Then he does. But oh, but I have bills. Well, then we didn't really inherit that much. And then, yes, but I have this. And the amount he had told her originally keeps getting less and less and less kind of honesty in marriage. And yes. um, I have someone who I remember um, some of my relatives, they, they had their little money games that they would play. Like the wife would, you know, put money in a drawer just for a rainy day in case they needed it. Or um, the husband would maybe spend a little bit more on things. And so I did hear some stories like that. And I thought, mm-hmm. boy, for a movie that came out, I think 1941, something. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, this is daring to ask these mm-hmm. questions. And also, I mean, it's the Noah Bumbach without being Noah Bumbach. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, yeah, it is uh, showing some of those sides. Yeah. And even though um, there's a sweet and romantic side to how Grant is depicted, um, here's a movie that, you know, like Hitchcock, it mines that side of him that Mm -hmm. isn't reliable. (laughs) Yeah, like right from the beginning in the courtship, which I thought was a really cool way to do it, because Mm -hmm. you do know sometimes when you get a crush on someone, you're like, oh, I love how impulsive they are. And then later on, well, I can't really count on them because they're always changing their mind or whatever. I mean, that's just a silly example. But early on, he sees her in a music store and buys like 25 records in order to be able to play them with her and spend the day with her and impress her enough and then bring her home and they can play more records. And uh, he didn't even own um, a, a record player, essentially. And no. then later you see that he is someone who is very frivolous with money. And uh, mm-hmm. oh, that was available, uh, you know, it was taken in as a sort of romantic gesture, but it was there mm-hmm. at the beginning. And so it does raise those questions. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then at the same time, he really gets into the role eventually of be, being a parent. And yes. when there's a threat to being a parent, that's when he, he the character finally mans up and it exactly. decides to become more res- responsible. And the sad thing about it is if, if that had been a biological child, they would have had time on their own to, yeah, that's true. to get out of their financial hole. But because they're a couple on probation for adoption, they're not they they don't have as much time to mm-hmm. to show that they can be fiscally responsible and, and raise that child in external pressure that that a, a couple with a biological child just would have longer to face. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good point. And I thought that the chemistry between the two, I mean, obviously by this point they had made uh, comedy films together Um, really pays off. And I think it was important that they had that foundation of working together Mm -hmm. so well by this point. I mean, Mm -hmm. Cary Grant has said that, you know, Irene was the actress he had the best timing with of any of his other actresses. 
And as far as she goes, she was not a huge fan. She did love uh, The Awful Truth, but she wasn't as into screwball or comedy as one would maybe expect when they think of Irene Dunn. She really Mm -hmm. responded more to these dramas like this one. And I Remember Mama, which was George Stevens too, I believe. I think so. Yes. Yes. And And um, that is such a good one. And then Cary Grant. I know he was quite proud of this role and he should be received an Oscar nomination. I think they're both great. What did you think of them here? They're both great. Like you said, they have that chemistry together. There are some funny scenes where she's um, dancing and doing housework when when the inspector comes from the, the, the orphanage, Miss Oliver to see, to see the home. Um, But she didn't, because comedy became, came easy for her. She didn't respect it as much as drama. I think she liked the challenge of drama. Yeah. She liked the challenge of drama. And usually it's a reverse. Usually people have a hard time with comedy Mm -hmm. and they talk about how hard it is. And, and so she was really talented at it to, to take it for granted because it came so, so easily to her. And this was actually a favorite role of hers. Yeah. Um, sometimes she's quoted as the, this being her her uh, favorite film because she had an adopted daughter. But then other I places she that. said Love Affair was her best, her favorite film. Mm-hmm. So she wavers a little. Um, Cary Grant had to be talked into this movie by I the bet. by George Stevens. He yeah. was really afraid of stepping outside of that comedic persona. And 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 being vulnerable and is specifically that scene where he has to beg a drudge. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And some people find it over the top sentimental, but if you're a parent and you're afraid you're going to lose your child, then yeah. you really are emotional. Me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think I, I, I yeah. yeah, I think that's a very effective. I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't question that, that scene. And that's the either. scene that earned him the nomination. <laughs> yeah. And you can see that that's interesting that he was hesitant and you can understand because it is yeah. taking him out of that sort of sunny disposition that we usually associate with him from the thirties, especially, but I had just done that episode on Leo McCary where we learned yeah. that in awful truth, he didn't want to make that movie because he worried he was going to make a fool out of himself And then Mm -hmm. later you heard him not want to make a film with Billy Wilder and he never did because he worried that he would be upstage or sometimes he wasn't sure if he should act opposite Audrey Hepburn if she was too young. So I think there was Mm -hmm. this sort of as much as you think of him as being supremely confident, sort of Mm -hmm. an insecure side or questioning his ability to do these things. Yeah. And then on the career side of things, this is the last movie that he and Irene Dunn made together because of what he wanted to do with his career. This, this was adapted from uh, a story aimed at women. It had a different title at first, but then the author changed it to Penny Serenade when she knew that was going to be the title of the movie. Martha, uh, Martha Chevens was the author and she had written a short story from McCall's magazine and George Stevens was looking for a change of mood. He had recently done comedies and he wanted to do something that, that hit a little harder emotionally. And he was grateful to Dunn and Grant for coming along with him on this journey because they had just had so much levity together with the, with the awful truth. Um, and so 
it was his mood, this mm-hmm. movie. And he was the one that found the story. Oh, and he, that's good. And he was the one that that solicited the the, the cast to work to work in this role um, with with him. But Grant wouldn't appear again with Irene Dunn because of her contractual stipulation that she would be first in credits. He would never Ooh. again be he would never again take a credit lower than first after this movie. Oh wow, probably after the Oscar nomination too. Yeah. Yeah. And and he would become a stickler too. Um he would become really hard about scripts and he would become really hard about money. Um David Selznick would later want to make a movie with him and he wanted Grant to take a pay cut um for this movie and he thought Grant would say yes because of his relationship with uh, the wife Irene Selznick and Grant said no. Wow. <laughs> and so, so this is Selznick- a pivotal moment for Cary Grant. Yeah. Yeah, and so those three things billing, script and money. Okay. Um became part of his primary ways of deciding on a on a role after this. Wow. So Penny Serenade is the end of an era for him and Irene Dunn and also just yes. uh, Cary Grant's mode of working and the roles that he would accept. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, our final film is another one that was completely new to me. Director Bud Yorkin's 1965 middle-aged sex comedy, Never Too Late, a bright, energetic, silly, big screen sitcom with a likable cast. The film, produced by Norman Lear, stars Maureen O'Sullivan as the wife of a spendthrift lumber company executive, played by Paul Ford, who's in for the surprise of her life when she discovers that after 25 years of marriage, she's going to be a mother once again, inspiring jealousy in her married daughter, Connie Stevens, who's something of an entitled princess and suddenly wants a baby with her own husband, Jim Hutton. The film chronicles everyone's reactions to the news in their New England town. Based on the 1962 Broadway play of the same name by Sumner Arthur Long, which was headed up by the same two leads. It's a fun one that I had totally missed. But how about you? How long have you been a fan of Never Too Late? I can't remember how old I was when I first saw it, but I remember it because of a special situation. Um, uh-huh. uh, my mom brought uh, my dad and me along with her to to visit my great grandmother um, Maria Gonzalez. And normally, when we would visit this this great grandmother, um, my grandfather would go along to be a translator. She didn't have a lot of English. She spoke mostly mostly Portuguese. She had immigrated to the country in the 1910s. And this was one of the rare evenings where we went without my grandfather. And we sat around watching this movie on the TV. And for years, I wanted to know what was that movie that we watched in my in my great grandmother's parlor. And then one Yes, yes. And because it made me think of her in that time and being little and and how it was funny and kind of strange about this, the 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 movie. And then one day Turner Classic Movies had this movie on and I didn't see it at the beginning. I turned on the TV and I was like, that's the movie I saw when I was a little kid at my great grandmother's house. And that's how I found out. Yes, that's never too too late. But the weird thing is. I have two familial connections to this movie that I didn't know. Um, When I told my mom I was going to be discussing this movie, she said, oh, when your father and I were dating, after we saw that movie in the theaters, he told me that he loved me for the first time. 
And so my memory is of my great grandmother. And now I, I know that it was like a turning point in my parents' relationship to see this strange comedy. (laughs) That is so funny. And it's weird that that is today that we're talking about that because I just rewatched Jeremiah Johnson for the first Mm -hmm. time in decades, which was the film that my parents saw on their first date uh, originally. So it's just kind of like, whoa, Beth Ann and I are in sync here with this. uh, We are. Movies that are important in our, yeah, (laughs) in our own lives, basically. Yeah. Wow. So never too late. Wow. Never too late. Um, Yes. uh, This is set in in New England. And you know what? The funny thing is the last movie we discussed, that the original story was set in New England too, but it was switched to California. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. But now we're, we're in a New England setting in the script and it was actually filmed in on location in Concord, Massachusetts. So it was filmed in New England. Yeah. It has some gorgeous downtown scenes and Mm -hmm. and some of the um, older homes that are profiled in it. Great. But of course I chose this because I I wanted to revisit it and see what it said about later in life motherhood. And this, this jumps me by, um, uh, not quite a decade because when Maureen O'Sullivan made this movie, she was 54 okay. and the actor playing her husband was 64. Yeah. Um, he looked much older than his character was supposed to be. I think his character yeah. was supposed to be like 51 or something. And you're like, no way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and sometimes that happens with, with aging, but oh, also, of course, especially back then too, they lived harder lives, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, but Maureen O'Sullivan and Paul Ford had originated the roles. Yeah. This third movie is an adaptation as well. So originally it was a play and they were the leads in the play and it it was a hit play. Um, Yeah. It it started off out of town and then in 1962, it went on Broadway. And so it ran for over a thousand performances on Broadway. So they were really knew their roles and they when it went to kind to, to put it on screen, they were lucky because sometimes Broadway performers, they don't make it to the screen. The only people they changed were the young couple, the yes. the son-in-law and the, and the daughter um, were both established film actors for, for this. And, and, and the really funny loved them. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's hilarious because a lot of people talk about um, boomerang generations. I remember when I was younger, they said, oh, Gen X is going to be a boomerang generation because of the economy. And then they said, oh, the millennials are going to be a boomerang generation because of, of the recession. And, and here we have this couple in, in their uh, mid to late um, 20s who are still daughter's still at home with mom and dad living with her husband. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I thought that the two of them were just so good. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jim Hutton, just such a charming actor. Every time I see him in something, I just think, wow, he's really good. Unfortunately left us too soon because of cancer. Mm -hmm. It was a shocking, uh, sudden death, but yeah, he couldn't be better in this role. Very, very funny. Connie Stevens is great. You know, she is playing essentially (laughs) this this overgrown teenager who is like 25 but she acts like a 16 year old like at first I wasn't sure how old she was supposed to be and I'm like wait yeah. married so yes. it throw you a little bit someone who's never cooked a dinner in her life or like done anything like mom is still doing everything around that house 
Yeah. And and poor mom is like an indentured servant. She's it doing really everything is. for everyone. Yeah. She starts off looking like Anne Harding with the long hair yes. <laughs> and just <laughs> and just kind of in a drab clothing. Yeah. And 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 so it, it's funny because discovering that she's pregnant is transformative. Suddenly she feels young. Yeah. Suddenly she's going to tell people no. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. It brings her back to her youth essentially. And uh, she's totally rejuvenated. Her husband is absolutely horrified, but um, <laughs> you know, at first she's shocked, but then when she walks out and uh, then it's like, wow, a new chance of, at life, a new lease on everything. And uh, yeah, and a chance for her to decide what she wants, uh, which is kind of crazy when you think like, well, she's pregnant and, you know, but as far as what she wants for the future of with this baby, essentially, yes, a nice way to look at it. Yeah. And and we get that um, classic film moment, the makeover moment with her. Yes. With her hat. Yeah. Her hat, her clothing, suddenly um, she's more fashionable and sparkly, shorter hair, more contemporary looking. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone in town is responding to them differently. You know, suddenly he's like this virile God walking around. (laughs) He's going to get like a contract because, you know, he's a new family man, essentially, which is very, very funny, I thought. Yeah. But also for Maureen O'Sullivan, this was a new lease on her career because uh, never too late was her first Broadway pr- production, oh, and really? there she is having a hit um, in, in the 1962. And this movie comes out, and and so she, I mean, she had been on the screen previously, Tarzan, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and of course she was married to um, John Farrow, um, yes. and and one of her seven children is Mia Farrow, mm-hmm. um, and so. It, it it renewed a lot of interest in in her career, this role on stage and on on screen. Yeah, and it feels very much it did come from a play, as we've established, but it does feel very much like a sitcom, which is yeah. interesting when you think of the link with Norman Lear, of course, and yeah. he was someone who was going to, you know, a whole new renaissance of sitcoms. Uh, he would help usher in in the nineteen seventies. Yeah. <laughs> And the director had formed a, a production studio with uh, Lear, um, Bud Yorkin, it called Tandem Productions. And so they made movies, but they also made TV shows together. Some yeah. of the TV shows were All in the Family, mm-hmm. Maude, Good Times, and Sanford and Son. And yeah. so he was very sitcom oriented in the, in, in the future. So it's funny because sometimes you say things that were plays feel like a play, but yes. this was a play that feels like a sitcom on screen. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any favorite moments in the film? Oh my goodness. Um, there's that really funny scene uh, where they're leaving uh, one of the stores and they go in the elevator and oh, the yes. little girl is looking at the belly of her mother she looks at the uh, Paul Ford's belly, and then she looks at Maureen O'Sullivan's um, padded belly too. And 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 uh, Paul Ford is the one that covers covers up out of embarrassment. <laughs> yes, it's so funny. Yeah, uh, and I think that was was that Maureen Lee Lenker. I think that that was somebody who who later also became uh, became of note too, the little girl. Oh, really? Yeah. And I know Timothy Hutton is in this in like a, a little moment where I guess he runs to his father or 
a father, I should say, a, a character. There is a moment there because Jim Hutton is the father of future Oscar winner uh, Timothy Hutton. So this was yes. his um, debut as well. So yeah, there are those little Maureen, Maureen Lee Lenker you said was in this too. And yeah. Well, let me think if I'm thinking of the right um, child star for one moment. One second. I, oh, I, okay, fine. I'm taking a moment to Google. <laughs> okay. It's okay. No, I actually have the wrong child actress. It's oh, um, Pam. It's Pamela Ferdin. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so Pamela Ferdin that, uh, that uh, you know, um, Pamela Ferdin plays the little girl and she looks from belly to belly to belly. And then Paul Ford covers up his belly. So yeah. some young starts in, in this movie as well. So that's a, a lot of fun. Um, yes. I, one thing that probably was hard for Marino Sullivan was between the play and the movie, um, John Farrow, her husband died. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so there, she had the success with, with a little bit of sadness there um, with his, with this death of a heart attack on that. Yeah. Oh. That would be hard for sure. Oh, and we got to mention too Lloyd Nolan, who is in so many things as the 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 aggravating mayor, who's in competition He's great in this. Yes, yes. Oh my god. Yeah, just the busybody and who's always getting in the way. I love that. Yeah. And he, and he's afraid suddenly that uh, Paul Ford's Harry is going to be a political opponent and is going to be more popular and will get the woman's vote. <laughs> yes, because he got his wife pregnant after all those. Like, it, he is an inspiration suddenly overnight in this yes. town. Like, maybe I can have a baby when I am uh, as old as, uh, yeah. you know, the characters. Yes. Yeah. And, and one thing I like um, um, that based on my own experiences of, of having uh, a pregnancy over 40 and over 45 is it's really sweet. There's nothing like scary uh, about it. They just make it seem natural um, in the mm-hmm. contemporary era today. If you're over 40, over 45, you're subject to so much statistics and testing and, and, and counseling. And, and this is just a celebration, which is fun. It's lighthearted. Yes. Yeah. They usually call it like a geriatric pregnancy when you're over five or something, because one of my friends uh, at 39, it was a shock. Uh, She found out she was pregnant because her husband had a vasectomy and it did not take. And so (laughs) uh, baby number three, they just found out after uh, so many years, like we're going to have another one. And uh, so at 39, they call it a geriatric pregnancy, which is like, come on. Yes. So that is nice in this, that it is just um, a sunny, um, I mean, again, as we established, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a shock for sure, but for a celebration, especially from everyone else. Yeah. Right. And and it really makes the younger characters take stock of their lives because they've been so babied and pampered. And now with the mother, as they used to say in the family way with her change of life, baby, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because there can be this period of fecundity before menopause. Um, And so suddenly the daughter realizes I'm not in the situation I want to be in. Mm-hmm. Connie Stevenson's Kate is like, I want a baby. I want this. I want that. And she re- and and part of it isn't just a baby, but there is suddenly this yearning for for adulthood because, like you said, they've been so coddled. They don't even have to do their laundry. I know it's so ridiculous. Yeah, just like we established with Penny Serenade, the Cary Grant character deciding that he needs to grow up or whatever when he 
um, realizes that he wants to be a father and doesn't want to lose this child, you know, mm-hmm. we have other characters just in their relation to the baby, even if they're not the parent realizing yep. that they need to grow up. Yeah. And then you see the the uh, biological side of it too, where it's it's played for laughs, but it's so true. The way back then that they would have tried to see um, if ovulation was occurring was constant temperature taking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. No. No apps. <laughs> yeah. The stress of her wanting to get pregnant and not being able to get pregnant, and yeah. 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 And and exhaustion. I mean. Yes. It, it, it basically became a job, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, lots of movies and TV shows deal with today, especially yeah. they didn't really deal with that as much back then. And so um, it's mentioned at least, of course, for laughs, but at yeah. least it's, it's in there. So they're being a little more frank about it. Yes, they are a little more frank. Yes. Yeah. No, but this was a good one. I So these last two I had totally not seen. I know these were the only ones that we opted to discuss for this episode, but when you were brainstorming, you did find one more modern movie that unfortunately wasn't available to stream for myself or other people. So what would you like to um, tell us about that one and any others that you'd like to recommend possibly? Oh, sure. I was thinking of Claire. That film came out in 2001 Mm -hmm. and at the time, it was the only contemporary movie to ever screen at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. Uh-huh. So it's a contemporary silent um, directed by Milford Thomas, and it, it's beautiful. It's a fairy tale movie. Mm. Um, there's an elderly, childless couple that finds a changeling. And there are some twists on that story. For one thing, the elderly, childless couple are a male couple. Um, Everybody else thinks of them as bachelor farmers, which kind of uh, makes you think of a phrase from, I guess, a Prairie Home Companion. But (laughs) these these bachelor farmers are like some of those uh, Boston marriages where, um, no, it wasn't just friendship. (laughs) (laughs) And and then it combines it with uh, a fairy tale um, that's Japanese. And so this isn't just an abandoned child. This is a changeling and she's kind of, kind of magical and it takes, she grows up with them. They have the joy of fatherhood and it's, it's a really sweet way of exploring the, the male urge to, to, to be a father and also to show that there's a, a queer couple that have that urge to be, to be parents, which we know a lot of couples who are queer do have. And it's just so, it, it was beautiful to, to see this movie. I wish I had gotten to see it at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, but I wasn't, I wasn't on the West Coast at, at, the, at the time. So I didn't see it till it was uh, on home video. And unfortunately it does seem a little harder to find, which is too bad because um, this production, such pains were taken to replicate what it was like to make a silent film. So oh, wow. it's not a movie made with modern techniques to look like a silent. It's one of those movies where they use silent film techniques to make a, a contemporary silent. Um, and oh, that's so uh, admirable. Yeah. Yes. And, and at one point there was talk of the director making more movies, but I, I really haven't seen anything else come come along f- from this person, and 
I I had bought it as a digital film at the time because yeah. that was the only way I could could get it from Amazon Prime, and it's not available that way yet. And if you go to the film's official website, the only way to see the film's official website is on the Wayback Machine now. Oh, um, that's so there. Yeah, it's, so that's a little heartbreaking because this is a beautiful film that that if you like silence, if you like fairy tales, if you're interested in Japanese uh, fairy tales, yeah. it's it's a wonderful uh, film to see. There are some copies of the DVD floating out there. They're they're pricey, okay. but but they are uh, they are out there uh, for purchase. I I don't think this has been uploaded to any any streaming sites. Um, Okay. It's still under, should still be under copy copyright. So I don't think anybody has, has burnt this and uploaded it to any streaming sites. So there's, there's no like green, gray market access to it. (laughs) Gotcha. And are there any others? I mean, that one sounds just quite magical, but are there any other films about parenthood that you would encourage people to seek out? Maybe ones that are a little um, more off the beaten path or just any favorites? Hmm. Oh, I hate to I hate to tease viewers, but I'm I'm really gonna push this because there's a, a movie from 1928 called Forgotten Faces. And okay. I I have a friend who was involved with the restoration of it. And oh, it can nice. it can screen at festivals, but there are issues with the rights. Mm-hmm. And so 100 years will be in 2028. So maybe that might free up some rights. But it is a wonderful movie for, again, on the father side of things. Um, so not just focusing on, on the uh, female perspective on this for me. Mm-hmm. It is a male Stella Dallas so the lead character is Clive Brook, um, you know, from Shanghai Express, mm-hmm. and he is a gentleman thief. Mm-hmm. He he ends up going to prison, but before he does, he hides his daughter from the mother because the mother decides that she, in revenge, because she's very mad about something with the father, um, madly mad about something against the father she vows that she will destroy their child in in revenge against the father and then at some point the father receives word from his best friend played by William Powell and (laughs) to make William Powell seem like the supporting character they give him a monobrow (laughs) oh wow oh that's crazy (laughs) so it's William Powell with monobrow who's also a gentleman thief, but he is honorable and he goes to his friend and warns his friend that this deranged mother played by uh, Olga Blakanova is going to get to the daughter because she knows where the daughter is. So Clive Brook breaks out of prison um, and, and hatches this whole plot to save his daughter without her ever realizing what her origins are and what an awful human being the mother is and, and that her father is, is a thief, a criminal. And so it is totally a male, male Stella Dallas. And I'm, it's another silent that I really, really hope that the video issues are, are reworked on that because there are people who could get that release if the, if the rights issues are resolved. And I hope people get to see that one in the, in the future, maybe, Maybe you'll have to wait till 2028 20, or beyond, but I really hope that, that people get to see that one. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. And, and it's, 
it's a, it's um, I think my number one favorite um, Clive Brook movie. My number two is a, is a pre-code with him, but that's my number one favorite with him that I saw at Capitol Fest in Rome, New York. Wow. Well, hopefully people listening who have any sort of links in film distribution will be giving you a call, obviously, for all your your big list of all these movies that need to uh, come out. And then they'll give you a call and you can write the essays for the the Blu-ray releases for these. Yeah, We need to get this in the works, Beth Ann. But I want to thank you so much for doing this. I learned a ton. It was just such a delight to talk to you about all these great movies and your life and all of this exciting stuff. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me. I had so much fun uh, fun chatting with you about film. Of course. Yeah. Anytime you come up with an idea, you're welcome back. Yes. Oh, thank you. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.